Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Today, I'm with Marcus Crow, co-founder of 10,000 Hours, where he designs and delivers live and virtual content for training and conferences and offsites. Welcome to the show, Marcus. Douglas, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you for having me. Of course. Let's get started here with a little story about how you began as a facilitator and a trainer. Well, I'm, I'm the youngest of um, three children with two older sisters and at the dinner table one Sunday night when I was about 24 years old. I was talking about something and, and my elder sister said, oh God, would you shut up or at least find a job doing it? And my younger sister, well, sorry, she's older than me, but the next, the middle child, if you like, um, she said to me, well, I've just come from a two-day presentation skills course and there was a guy getting paid to talk there. Maybe you could do that. And I'd never heard of workshop facilitation or workshop training or corporate facilitation. I had none of those terms. She didn't use those terms. She just said, I was in a room for two days. There was a guy at the front of the room. He was pretty good on his feet. He wasn't an Olympic athlete or somebody who'd walked to the North Pole. He just had a, a workshop content and he did a great job. And And that's how I got my lucky break. I started in, uh, in that firm. I, I wrote to them and rang them up and sort of probably was just a little bit naive and confident. And they gave me a they gave me a start. I think I was cheap. That helped. Um, so <laughs> I was very lucky in terms of how I fell into it because I think we all fall into it. There's no 16-year-old saying, when I grow up, I want to be a workshop facilitator. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I, I talk to so many facilitators and everyone comes from a different place and finds their path in a different way. And I think that's what I enjoy about that question the most, specifically as it pertains to facilitators and I, I want to unpack a little bit. Tell me a little bit about that first agency that you were working with. Like, how did they approach facilitation, and what, what was one of the first lessons that you learned? Well, they were very. Um, they they grew up out of the advertising industry, which is probably not that surprising. I'm um, helping ad agencies pitch, and oddly enough, have some heritage in New York with the original founder Peter Rogen. Um, sadly, the firm's gone through a number of iterations, and then finally has been sort of folded and dissolved as the the talent sort of drifted away from it. But in its day, um, its philosophy was anchored around presentation skills was probably the the core product, I suppose, and helping people stand up and you know put their ideas across and and it used all of the Aristotelian structures and all the things that are all well travelled these days and found online in any book you might pick up. But my lucky break was they had sponsored the Australian Olympic Committee and the at the time, which was the mid nineties, um, the Sydney organising committee of the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games. And to make good on that sponsorship, they needed to deliver um, $800,000 worth of consulting services in the form of presentation skills. So my lucky break was I was a cheap resource to go and make good on that that sponsorship in kind promise. And so I ran four and a half days a week running workshops on teaching people how to present in terms of design their agenda and set out their PowerPoint as it was emerging at the time um, and get up on their feet and use humor and, you know, deal with questions and all those things. So the, the fortunate part of that was that the content I was using was allowing me to watch people stand up at the front of a room as part of their own educational experience of the workshop. So I saw 
hundreds of people present. And watching that, I was able to see so many different ways of being effective. Uh, and that's what I think was the, and that's luck. No, there was no planning in that. That was pure luck. And I was really, looking back, I'm very grateful that I got a wide exposure to seeing how humour can be done in different ways, how impact can be achieved in different ways and how quiet voices are just as powerful as loud voices and all these sorts <laughs> of things. And I was um, always curious at how somebody who seemed to have all the goods couldn't land their message and somebody else who perhaps lacked all the obvious qualities that we might think about in terms of, you know, charisma and presence and big gestures um, and yet was just unable to connect with their room. Um, and so it was a very fortunate start. So that brings me to a question that I was pondering actually when you were starting to talk about the presentation skills and the work that that agency did. And I'm curious, what surfaced for you as you worked with lots of new presenters? What do you think is the magic moment? What was the thing that, you know, if people only get this one thing, what would be the thing that allows them to connect with their audiences better? I think it's when they feel like they're in dialogue with somebody who's absent filters and veneers. And, and it's important not to privilege that over everything else. I think some filters and veneers and some, we make a lot of effort to present ourselves. I mean, I'm doing it right now here with you. I'm very conscious right now of how I'm sounding and what I'm saying. And I'm mindful of, you know, doing a good job for your audience and, you know, and, and for both of us. And I think with time, I don't think it happens quickly in a, in a workshop. I think the workshop needs to mature in, in terms of the time of it. So that might be by the middle of the afternoon on the second day, for example, such that the room's in a place where, because in the end, we know it's true. It's just a bunch of fallible mammals sitting around trying to figure something out for which there's no playbook, ultimately. And we just need to make some decisions together about what we're going to do. And so it's very much an improvisational um, setting. And I think when we all realise that we're all kind of making it up as we go along, but that's okay, and together we'll figure something out, that's when I've certainly felt a lovely moment, or to use your beautiful word, you know, the magical thing. You know, when an IT professional stands up and says, here's the plan for the IT transformation, and quite honestly, I don't know if it's going to fully work. Uh, you know, that's just so refreshing, because that's actually mm. true. You don't know. You, don't, you haven't unplugged those old legacy systems yet. You don't know what's going to. And I remember one guy, and he said, look, we don't know. He said, we've done a lot of work, and we're, we're, we've thought about a lot of the contingencies, and we think we've got most of it covered, but there's probably something we haven't factored in, and and we'll be ready for that should that occur and hopefully we'll have what it takes to respond. And, and I remember watching the audience go, God, that was refreshing for you just to be honest and candid about the, the inevitable fallibility in your otherwise beautifully put together plan, which was a beautiful plan. And yet he recognized that it was only going to take him so far. That was a magical moment. I love that. You know, it, that vulnerability goes so far because you're going to connect with folks in a way that they're going to stay with you. They're going to pull the daggers out the minute things start to go wrong because you, you kind of let them know it's an inevitability. I think it even just goes to show intelligence. I mean, I think really, you just go, that's really the only intelligent response to suggest that you've got it all buttoned down and you've covered everything and nothing's going to go wrong. I, I think just on examination, just because of the combinatorial explosion of all the different things that are in the mix you know, including that one of your JavaScript programmers might have a partner who gets a medical diagnosis that means he or she can no longer, like, did you factor that in? Because that could happen. And in fact, it's those sort of things that do happen. And suddenly your project team is down by one or two and your timetables have slipped. And so your timelines are different. And so the revenue you'd forecast to come in when the system was live doesn't come in because, and so on and so on. 
there's any number of those things. Absolutely. You know, I was just thinking too about some of the stuff we were chatting about just before the podcast started. And just this notion that during COVID, there was a shift toward a focus around connection and, you know, making sure that people's feelings were understood, supported, that we were helping each other through this really tough time. And, and you were pointing out that you were starting to see some issues with just a backlash from that, especially given that, you know, in Australia, you're kind of back online for all intents and purposes. And so I'm kind of curious to hear what you're noticing there just around this need to be a bit more maybe critical of folks during performance reviews, et cetera. I'm really curious to hear more about this. Well, in, in answering this, I'm very conscious of the time we're in and, and, and frankly, the asymmetry of the experience. Um, one of the things I've struggled with through this is where we've had this hashtag all in it together. I just don't think that's an honest reflection of, I think it's the least symmetrical, the least egalitarian experience possibly ever and how differently it's played out around the world. So Australia has been, been lucky and competent in, in managing that, but also lucky, which means we're back in the room now with, with groups of people, um, masks off, you know, frankly, more or less as before. There's hand sanitizer and wipes and, you know, the lunches are individually packed, but, but really it's for all practical purposes, we're, we're, we're back. And what we're noticing is that the teams that we're sitting with, who apart from being very glad to be back in a room and enjoying that collegiate contact physically have lost their fitness for performance discussions and talking about the numbers and and when frankly if the numbers aren't where they are you know difficult performance discussions i think you know for some of our clients you know covid in a perverse way was was quite good for them commercially and we can think of all the contexts where that would be true you know pathology labs and um, you know, cleaning companies and these sorts of things have all had a pretty good time commercially. Um, but for others, it hasn't been that. And, you know, they've had to talk about, okay, what are we going to do about these numbers? And I think for, for us as a, as a profession, as facilitators, you know, frankly, I think we were hard hit um, by, the, by the pandemic. And I know many listening are probably still in the, in the midst of all of that, that, you know, that great discomfort of, you know, we all pivoted and went online and all these sorts of things, but that was to varying levels of success. And we're at varying levels of readiness and maturity with it ourselves. But I think I'm optimistic. And if I can offer this from Australia to those of you in other parts of the world that might not yet be as far through or out of, of COVID as we might like to think we are, again, touch wood uh, here in Australia, is uh, be ready for an upswing of teams who have been starved of collegiate contact. They're looking for our skills and they're needing to have dialogue that they haven't had for a while to talk candidly about their performance and about the way they're working together. And we're certainly enjoying the return of that and we're finding we're providing a, a great service to those teams who go help us establish that psychologically safe environment that holding environment to do these kinds of conversations because we haven't for a while and we need to mm, so that's interesting so you're seeing that people are willing to have these conversations they're open to them but they're a little bit hesitant or concerned about how maybe unprepared or ill-rehearsed they are to have them yeah look the metaphor we use all the way through our work is a metaphor of fitness rather than technique mm -hmm. i think for a lot of us we're scratching around for the six steps to this and the four ways to that and the three box arrow model whereas we take a fitness logic which is look it's 
fitness is is perishable. You know, whatever level of fit, physical fitness you and I might possess, or anyone listening, however fit you are. And, and one way to ask yourself that is, how far could you run before there'd be a problem, right? You know, could you run for one mile, five miles, ten miles? You know, what's that resident latent level of fitness you possess? And you know that whatever it is, if you want to keep it, you've got to work at it. And teams are the same. You can think of a collaborative team as a, if you like, a far from equilibrium state in that it needs a constant supply of energy to stay in collaboration. And if it's lost that through COVID, then it needs to find that again. And a bit like going back to the gym, having not gone for six months, you're a bit sore. You're not as strong as you used to be. But then same thing, a bit like going back to the gym after six months, pretty quickly, if you re-establish your rhythms, you can rediscover that capacity to have dialogue that's conflictual and survive quite quickly, if you used to be able to do it before. You know, I love that metaphor. It's like, you know, facilitator being similar to your personal trainer, you know, that helps you kind of stay on task and make sure you're moving with the right form and paying attention to the right <laughs> things. And to take that metaphor further, I think it's fascinating to think about, you know, because you, you talked about how far you run can be a good measure of fitness. I think also there are different modalities too, right? So you look at someone who's trained to be a boxer, mm. they might not do so well in MMA. <laughs> Likewise, if they're an MMA fighter, they might not be such a great boxer. And then you go even further out, like someone that's a shot put thrower uh, might not be good at pole vaulting or someone really great at, you know, sprinting is not going to be really great at running a long distance run. And I think that our fitness is going to vary based on task and intent. This even harkens to Andy Grove's concept of task oriented maturity. Mm. Say a bit more about that. How does that? Yeah. So he, he wrote a book called High Output Management. He's a, he was a manager from IBM and mm. his book's really great. Great thinker, great, great manager, a lot of great content on one-on-ones. And the concept's pretty simple. It's really dangerous to assume your senior people are senior at everything. Mm. It's also dangerous to assume your junior people are junior at everything because do they have a high school internship like doing like a bunch of Google AdWords? Or are they just like amazing at Google AdWords, even though they're like 18 years old or whatever? Yeah, um, yes. So yeah, it's important to understand your people and know what they're capable of and what areas are they the most fit. I love this fit metaphor. Well, that's, I mean, that's interesting as you look around a group, I'm sometimes surprised at who goes first, you know, when we're trying to establish some candid disclosure and and to your point and the Andy Grove metaphor, it's not always, in fact, often isn't, you know, who you might think it should be, um, whatever that may mean, you know, the most senior, the most seasoned, the longest tenure. And again, that's part of why we love what we do, right? Because I'm actually never certain who it is going to be. I've always got my hunch. Mm. I, think, oh, I think it'll be you. Um, but quite often that that's often, that's wrong most of the time. Um, and then somebody pipes up and we go, oh, wow. Okay, thank you for getting us started and, you know, and off we go. Um, because there's a risk in, in going first. Um, the, the groups are risky. I think we should always remember that as facilitators. You know, one of the things that gives me the biggest smile as a facilitator is when I've been working with a group for a while and all of a sudden the person that either goes, typically goes last or, you know, maybe, they're, maybe they, they go near last or somewhere near the middle and all of a sudden they go first. They have their first share moment, and it's like always bring a smile to my face because I know that the group is transforming in a meaningful way. Mm. Yeah, it's lovely. So I want to talk a little bit about another topic you brought up, which was in this notion of how a crisis might shift the needs of our leadership, or it might just shine a light on how various forms of leadership might be less or more effective 
And you were pointing out the zeitgeist around facilitation and, and the moves and types of things that we talk about and celebrate as facilitators and this notion of, you know, setting the vision and getting out of the way, hiring great people and letting them do great work. Whereas now we're seeing some evidence where command and control has been effective during this crisis. And so what does that mean for us from your perspective? Well, the comment came from, and look, and this could just be the way LinkedIn is, LinkedIn's algorithm is curating the world towards what I'm seeing. Um, so, you know, that has to be set up front as a caveat. But I noticed in the OD, in the org development community, and I'm going to put facilitators loosely within that for lack of anywhere else more appropriate, I suppose, is that there seems to be a fashion or a zeitgeist around that, you know, command and control is bad and it's Frederick Taylor and it's old and it's Henry Ford and, you know, we shouldn't do that anymore, the industrial age, boo. And... Uh, uh, freedom and autonomy and accountability and all the way out to sociocracy and holacracy and empowerment and teal, this sort of idea that there's this better, superior way that is in all is in all ways good. You know, it seems to be a narrative of you've got to move away from the former and embrace the, the latter. And I find that intriguing. Because for me, it feels a bit like, you know, I'll use a tennis metaphor, my... Um, my two teenage boys play a lot of tennis, so I have an unhealthy amount of time at tennis centres, uh, and I, you know, watching that game uh, more closely as I've as I've as I've had to, um, you know, you, you watch a tennis player, and you you know they might have great forehand, and that'll get them out of trouble in a lot of situations, you know, and then sometimes they can run around a ball that's a backhand and still make it into a forehand, and to me that's a bit like the metaphor there being. Um, if I'm going to do empowerment management or I'm going to do the so-called Douglas McGregor, Elton Mayo, you know, all the way out to, you know, Teal and these ideas of freedom, um, I think you you don't have the whole game if you if you say no to command and control. So I'm not anti either of them. I think they're both necessary, like a forehand and a backhand need to be present in a competent tennis player. So... And where I'm going with this and why the COVID reference is that if you actually look at how COVID has been managed around the world, and you can decide whether it's been good or bad, but if you look at the, the methodology, there's been enormous amounts of command and control leadership. You know, there have been mandates given from heads of state and health authorities that have told us to do certain things. They have commanded and controlled plenty of things. And I think in many instances, you know, that's welcome. It's, again, not to say it's the only approach, but I think we we miss something if we want to wholesale reject command and control and entirely embrace. And I think facilitators who do that get themselves into trouble um, where they want to sort of go down this path of, you know, the World Cafe and open space and unconference. You know, all of these are sort of freedom methodologies designed to let the community self-organize and figure it out on their own. Isn't the group amazing? Um, they're not invalid. I just don't think they're the complete repertoire. And it's, to me, it's no different to saying I'm going to be a tennis player and I'm going to focus only on my forehand. I think you're vulnerable to the things that say, all right, well, I'm going to send some balls down the edge of the court that you're just not going to be able to get to because you only know how to play the forehand side of the court. Does that make sense? I've probably taken too long to answer. No, that. no, I think it's fantastic. And it brings me to a topic that I'm near and dear about, which is complexity theory. I think we often find ourselves in a VUCA environment, you know, living in a <laughs> complex adaptive system in the complex quadrant of the Kinevin and that's why these tools work so well for us, because in that environment, we had to probe and sense and respond and empowering the edges and, you know, allowing everyone to, like, find the answers. 
because what worked yesterday is not guaranteed to work tomorrow. But once we find ourselves in either a complex or a simple solution that we know is the answer and we need it tomorrow, <laughs> then you're right. A command and control style leadership is going to really help us deploy that, right? And that's what you were seeing and talking about with these masks and the vaccines and whatnot, right? Like, I think it probably took some complex and some very free thinking for them to find these solutions. Once the solution was found, now we're operating in a complicated domain and we need someone to like create the recipe, the rules and execute it. And I would even say the command and control were operating in a complicated domain. They simplified it down into something that everyone in the localities could execute, you know, from a simple domain. It's like, here's a checklist, go do it. Mm. Yeah, well, and, and as ever, you you know, you're describing the fact that you know, I think yeah, you know, the point I want to make is that both things are always there, um, and I think when facilitators walk all the way over to the emancipation methodologies like World Cafe and Unconference and Open Space, and you know, and my apologies if I'm missing a few or if I'm misdescribing some of them that I am, I think is just to not have the whole game, and I think you you're vulnerable professionally, so I think we have to think about the more structured and directive, um, as well as the, the looser ones. And inevitably, all of them have some level of structure in them, you know, some sort of yeah. direction that sets up the boundary within which the freedom can can be carried. I think one, an interesting phrase I heard a participant use, he goes, oh, Marcus, this is like tethered autonomy. We can do whatever <laughs> we want, provided we land in these six boxes on the worksheet. And, you know, and I thought that was, he was being funny, but also quite sort of apt. So tethered autonomy is probably what's happening all the time is yeah. do what you like. That's why we really love the name Control the Room because we understand that there's always a decision on behalf of the facilitator how much control we want to elicit. And do we want to have loose control or do we want to have tight control? Mm. And with loose control, you know, those tethers, there's a long leash on that tether, right? Yeah. And we give them a lot of room to wiggle. But to your point, there's still some structure. If there wasn't, then we wouldn't be showing up. There'd be no reason to call us a facilitator. Mm. So it's like, you know, the ones that are really in love with these very autonomous, very loose styles sometimes will take, you know, they'll get concerned about the word control and get a little uptight about it. And mm. my belief is that, well, if you weren't exhibiting any control, you wouldn't be there. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. You agreed on the hotel venue. Yeah. Somebody controlled that. Um, you've That's agreed right. a time frame. You know, we're not going to be here for 72 hours. We're here for a day, you know, for eight. Um, I think that's right. I think it's it's in the, I mean, even in the intro to your own podcast, part of what attracted me to your show is you talk about, you know, how do we balance um, the right amount of, I'll, I'll get the words wrong, you might, you can help me, um, that little bit you use at the very start of every episode. Just remind me, what, what are the words you use? Gosh, it's been a while since I've even read it. So, you know, it's to me, it's about how you lean in and how you lean out. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So part of that, I think, is it, it's gorgeous, right? Because it's it's recognizing, and look, if we talked about what's a practical thing people could use. In part of my get-go at the start of many sessions, especially when I'm new to the group, I'll often say to them, I say, look, I'm going to disappoint some of you at every moment during the day <laughs> um, because at some point I'm going to rein in a discussion that some of you would like to have continue. And yet simultaneously, there'll be others in the room who, when I rein it in, will be annoyed I took so long to do it, um, who will have felt that it should have been 
curtailed, you know, half an hour earlier. And I want you to know that I'll do my best to get most of you happy most of the time. But in advance, I want you to know that I recognize that I will disappoint some of you because your appetites for the content will vary across the day. And I found that a useful frame because it just buys me the latitude because it's certainly at any point they go, geez, Marcus, you killed that too quickly or... Or come on, wind that up. Why did that let? Why did you let that one go? It can be a useful way to, you know, explore the fact that there are different appetites for for what they talk about and for how long they do it. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love it. You know, I often tell people that expectation setting is kind of nine tenths of the problem. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if we yes. If we really do a good job of making sure. Some people refer to them as ground rules or operating agreements or whatever, but ultimately yeah. we got to set the expectations up front and then we can lean on those things later when things don't go so well. I think it's the, the latter bit that you just said is the, is the key to all those upfront gestures to say, you mm-hmm. know, is this what we said we would do? Um, and, you know, even then inviting a deviation from it saying, you know, this is different to what we said we would do, but how do we feel about persisting with this now that it's here? Oh, that's um, a total power move, mm. deferring to the group. Yeah. You know, we got one person that's kind of deviating. I want to make sure everyone else is comfortable with that. And you know, if they're not, then I just got their support. So it's not me against that person. Right? Mm. That's right. Um, and I found it, again, in the spirit of you know, little tactics that people listening could, could use. I've got an app. It's called Clock. Um, it's not very imaginative. It has a series of clock faces in it um, and I put that on full screen on my phone and I stick my phone in the middle of the circle so that everybody can see the time ticking and I say I'll tell you what let's give it 10 minutes and we'll see where we get to and mm. and that has been a useful gesture to say we're not sure it's, it's important although it seems to be important to Jeff over here and look it's only 10 minutes so let's see what we can do with it in 10 minutes and if that reveals it to be necessary or further then we can decide or we can curtail it and that's that's been a useful way to navigate some of those little moments of passionate surprise that pop up as the group goes along. Yeah, I love this notion of time boxing. I think that's a powerful tool, no matter if we're in a workshop or just doing some work or even even just personal work or even outside of collaboration. Yeah, well, it, it, I mean, it goes back to what we were discussing. I mean, it's a form of structure, right? So you're mm-hmm. saying I can either give you a boundary spatially and I can say only discuss these topics, or I can give you a boundary temporally saying, I don't care what you discuss, but you can only do it for this long. Um, and often we do some combination of that. We set the, we set the space and the time. But, um, you know, again, all useful vehicles for a facilitator to manage what they're doing. So I want to kind of marry these two topics we've been talking about. One is the need to maybe have more structure at times, to use more deterministic uh, facilitation styles. And then also the need for and the hunger for teams to have more performance driven conversations. And I'm curious, what are some of your go-to strategies or techniques to help a group have that kind of conversation? Okay. Um, I'll just give you some practical examples. Uh, now, again, it depends on the quality of the numbers. So I'm going to, I'm going to work on a scenario where the numbers aren't what we'd like them to be. And the reason for that is probably obvious, but when the, when the numbers are what we'd like them to be or better, um, I, I think it's far easier, mainly because generally there are no losses to allocate to the group in terms of, well, you missed and you missed, but you hit and, you know, we don't have to deal with some of that difficult stuff. Whereas if the numbers aren't where we want them to be, um, what I'll often do is say, right, I'm going to put up a slide which shows you the numbers. And whatever the, the pivotal one or two graphs or tables are, we put them up. 
And then I'll invite everybody to pick up, and we give everybody a you know a blue ten thousand hours notebook and a you know pencil. I say, right, open your books, and I'll put some music on, and I'll just go to the group, and I'll say, you know, you know, Angela, what's in your playlist on your music? Give me something, and I'll just whatever she says. It's often quite funny because she'll say, oh, it's not safe for work. What I listen to, that's funny by itself. But anyway, I get a I get a song, and so. I say, righto, we're going to, you've got one song's worth of time. Thank you, Angela, for the, for the music suggestion. And when the song's finished, I'm going to get you to stand up, but I'd like you to write down how you're feeling and what you're noticing about these numbers and what you think is going on in the business. Um, now, what that does is distribute the cognition. So they're all thinking collectively, but in an isolated way, because I don't want the first person to infect what the next person thinks. So they, music on, which quietens the room, they write down. Then I'll get them to go for a pairs walk. I'll say, right, go and find somebody across the room who but for today you'd barely ever see, and today's a chance to spend time. Grab them, and you're going to go for a walk for 20 minutes. Walk out for 10 minutes, wherever you get to, turn around, come back. And come back here in 20 minutes, having talked about what you've written down. So now I've got some real sense-making in the room between the individuals and then the pairs of individuals. And then we come back, and then I say, my only question is, what were you struck by through that exercise, not what did you think of the number, just what were you struck by through that exercise. Now, some people give you a very functional answer. Well, the numbers have fallen by 12% because we failed to execute in the Western region or you know something like this. But other people go, God, I just found myself moving from feeling angry to then feeling a bit sad to then feeling a bit excited when I spoke with Chris as we went for a walk that maybe we can do this, uh, you know, and, and any and all of anything else could happen. But I find that's a useful way to surface the the unflattering because the numbers aren't flattering and then have the group gently um, play with that topic. And then obviously we'll follow the threads as they come up. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I love that. You know, my next question or curiosity is, you know, in this time of COVID, I've definitely seen an uptick in bad customer service and they generally blame COVID. And, and you know, on one hand, it's it's important to be sympathetic and and understand that you know they, there might be people out of work. But there's another, maybe more cynical part of me that just wonders: Is it just become an excuse to say that we have longer call volumes because of COVID? Is it just an excuse now to say that like, oh, this is going to take longer to arrive at your house? You know, certainly in the, the few weeks and months following, but it's been a year now, and yet people are still using it as an excuse. So I'm wondering if this mindset has percolated into any of your workshops that are talking about performance reviews where it's like, yeah, we're not doing so hot, but you know, COVID. <laughs> yeah. Well, and again, isn't that tricky, right? Because for mm-hmm. some of those organizations, that's a legitimate thing to say. And and for others, they're using it as, as one leader said to me the other day, she said, oh, look, this has been great. It's been cloud cover. We've been able to excuse <laughs> all these other terrible things that we're not good at. And it's given us cloud cover for everything. Oh, COVID, COVID. Oh, we missed the deadline, COVID. Oh, we didn't win the pitch, COVID. Um, so <laughs> she said, and I've had it. I'm sick of COVID cards being played to avoid mm-hmm. us talking about the fact that we missed the pitch because we weren't prepared. You know, we, 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 we didn't win the piece of work because we didn't interpret the brief properly and we didn't respond well enough. You know, she said, I want to get back to those conversations because COVID's allowing us to not examine ourselves in, in clear light. Um, and having said all of that, of course, there are contexts where it is still a legitimate contributing factor. And for every organisation and then for every facilitator, you know, I think that's a great question in our briefing process with our sponsor for our workshop is to say, where are you up to with COVID being a, 
an influence on the performance of this group and this business and mm-hmm. just see what they say to that because it's going to vary in all your settings and you know because some of them will say nah they've got to stop talking about it. it it's it's no longer a thing it's normalized it's part of the fabric we've got to get on with it you'll get that type of response and others will say look it's very much playing a role you know for good or for bad frankly you know you work with a with a you know parts parts of healthcare they're having of depending on the part of healthcare but you know things are good because of covid um commercially maybe bad operationally because they're still in some sort of scramble mode that meant maybe some of the business as usual or the normal rhythms have been abandoned to service the the needs through the pandemic um but i think it's a really important question to ask in the in the design of the session yeah you know you're right it's important to have some sensitivities there i think also as facilitators our jobs to ask tough questions and to be curious and listen. Yeah. And what, even if they haven't admitted it yet or not, it's probably worth asking, sure, yes, COVID's playing a role, but what if we were to, what if we had a control and we were able to remove the COVID? What else was playing an impact here? Because it's certainly not in a vacuum, or, you know, we're certainly still making the pitch. So even mm-hmm. with COVID, like how, how could we have done the pitch better? I think that might be worth exploring in these conversations. And, you know, it's, I'm just very curious because we haven't had a ton of conversations like that to date. I think there'll be more coming. So it's mm. like, I'm getting very curious about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's um, definitely something leaders want to talk about, mainly because I've found they're frustrated that it's been the only allowable narrative for a long time is that, oh, COVID. And, and they're like, look, it's more nuanced than that. There's more moving parts. It's not just this. Uh, or they're saying, look, it, it is a thing, but it's 12 months old now. So we have to just factor it in to the way we work and get back to working and stop having it as a reason to not try and perform. Um, so I find a lot of leaders are, are sort of pent up and frustrated. And, and hence, they're coming to their facilitation provider to say, help me to broker this dialogue. I want to get my group talking about this mm. and I'm scared I'm going to come across as an uncaring unloving, unfeeling leader who's all about the performance. So please help me to get my group to a place where we can explore that. And of course, this goes back to my earlier point. I think facilitators, I think, will have a lovely season off the back of this pandemic, having had a horrendous season in it, as groups are going, get us back to our fitness, help us get back to these conversations that we need to be having. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And I think it might be a nice time to segue to this idea of professional facilitation training preparation. What does a bachelor's in facilitation look like, and when might we get there? Well, I'd love to. What, I don't, what do you think? I don't. I don't know how far <laughs> away, how long this is going to take. Um, I, I'm optimistic. It it may end up getting there. I, I've just in a few podcasts I've listened to and and been on. Um, Every time the topic comes up, there's there's an interest in it. You know, there's enough professional colleagues around the world who, who are interested. But for my two cents, I think we as a profession are about twenty to thirty years behind psychotherapy. Um, if you look at that field, you know, they have professional bodies that sanction access to practice. They have a body of literature that they feel every student should be across. So you've got to read your Carl Rogers and your Egan, and you've got to you've got to know your Freud and your behavioral and your emotion focused therapies, and you've got to read your common factors and Bruce Wampold. And, you know, there's a whole lot of things you've got to do. Um, and then you've got to do your hours. Um, so you've got to get your time up, much like the pilots do. Um, so you've got to put in your clinical hours. You've got to put in your supervision. You've got to maintain supervision. 
uh, you've got to maintain your own exposure to um, psychotherapeutic contact and um, and then keep all your records and then you know have that ready to 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 report so there's some lovely disciplines in that field which I think we can learn from so I'm, I'm optimistic that um, you know we could think about well what's the literature what's the curriculum so you might say well you you need to understand some of the work from the group dynamics environment so you know Yalom and and Beyond and Fuchs and all of that work at that that Northfield and everything that the group community have sort of put together um, you might say you need to know management you need to know the history of management and leadership you need to go back to you know Frederick Taylor and read your way forward through all of the time pet spans so you can see the patterns and the fashions come in and come come out again because um, they do come and go if you look at it through a longer span and then what I've also noticed is there's professional loneliness I think there's a lot of facilitators that are craving collegiate contact um, and time with other colleagues to to have that sort of iron sharpens iron intellectual friction so that you know you and I are doing it right now you might say um, so I'm optimistic because I think there's a need and I think there's an interest in it being established you know I think it's really important and it was one of the main drivers for our facilitation lab every Thursday to give facilitators a, a place to gather and get curious and experiment and work together. And also one of the reasons why we encourage all the facilitators in the community to create like other gatherings, other moments, right? It doesn't have to be the official Thursday. Get together and have these study groups, have these moments of curiosity because that's how we're going to grow. That's how you get to your 10,000 hours that's right. <laughs> so that you can get to mastery and understanding. So also, you know, I just want to point out and some of the stuff we've been talking about today really points to something, a, a passion and a value of mine around, you know, it's so easy for facilitators to get siloed in one particular approach, mm. whether it's, you know, getting interested in the very open and, and the very broad and inclusive style on the loose style or whether it's um, design thinking or whether it's like, you know, MG Taylor, you know, or, you know, some specific methodology that they learn. And typically it's what they found first, you know, it's what yes. they stumbled on and introduced them into the world. And they, there's a, that holds a, a special place in their heart, which is very understandable. And we're not trying to change that, but what we want to do is encourage people to think about how there's so much more out there yeah. And when you start to look at the intersectionality of these different techniques and bring them together, you start to create the chocolate peanut butter combinations and things. And, yeah. and you can be a lot more versatile. And even if you go back and you're still doing open space, the way you host open space will change <laughs> yes. because your view of the world is different. Well, I think that's a beautiful example of why um, peer council is so valuable and what mm. you've built up in your communities, right? So, because if the open space, I think, I mean, I think if the first question a facilitator should ask is, do I have a model or does the model have me? <laughs> and if you ask that, you because you, that immediately allows you to get a little bit of distance from it and go, I got taught open space. I did open space. I loved it. I learned it. I started running it. And, you know, Harrison Owen, and I've got the book and I've read it cover to cover and I've got, it, it, it's what I do. Uh, now, there's nothing wrong with that because you need most of us come into the field with a structured piece of content that we learn to deliver. You know, we get handed a set of lyrics to a song and we start by singing that song. Um, if you if you examine any songer though, uh, songer, if you examine any singer, um, you'll notice that they learn other songs because eventually they go, there's more to music than just the first one that I came into this with. And we not to torture the metaphor, but therefore as a facilitator, we want to encounter 
the other methods so that, frankly, we're more resilient to shocks in our group. So if all we've got is open space and that's really annoying our group, then we are vulnerable to, and I don't mean it in the fashionable use of the word vulnerable, I mean it technically. We, we are vulnerable to being dismissed mm. and curtailed and you know killed off. So what we want to be able to do is say, okay, so my my World Cafe open space, the unconference play isn't landing as well. What I might do is draw down on my um, scrum techniques or my um, human-centered design techniques, or you mentioned MG Taylor. I mean, you know, my view is I, I don't actually care. I think any of the any of them can be fruitful um, because most of what's happening in a workshop environment is the charisma, rapport, connection, willingness hope that's going on between the group and the facilitator because uh, i've seen too many facilitators who are wonderful that use different methods so it's obviously not the method because i'm going well you're you've had a spectacular career and you're just all about you're just you're actually just very funny and you you just basically read the room and get them chatting and ask them hard questions that's what you do over here i've got a human-centered design character you're amazing and over here i've got a an open space sort of freedoms player and you're amazing so your techniques are all wildly different so what is it and it's those common factors um so i think it's important to have lots of lots of moves i agree being versatile being able to adapt and move with the group and read the room i think it's the pinnacle skill of a facilitator and again back to your peers i was going to ask you what what's the format when your groups get together what's the if there is a format that's re mm. that's repetitive is there a rhythm and structure to how they spend the time when they gather and convene? Yeah, so we usually have an opener of some sort. It might be a fun little activity just to kind of ease in like a soft start. And then our guest or our host will basically be introduced. They have about 40 minutes to do what they will. Then we spend the remainder of the time, I think we have about 15, 20 minutes after they're done to do a quick retro feedback session on our guest. <laughs> Because we will never learn unless we debrief. So we're kind of following one of the pinnacle rules of facilitation in the lab. So, you know, the guest will come and do something with us, but we always make sure we take a step back out of that lens and critique it and talk about it as a group. And then we always end with like just group kind of discussion, hangout time. And then maybe once a month or every six weeks or so, we will not have a guest and we'll do what we call open lab and we just invite facilitators to come hang out and we'll, we'll, we might have some games and activities planned just to kind of keep it a little bit structured, but it's really mm. about the community connecting and, and asking questions and hanging out with each other more than anything. Mm. But yeah, it's about like ultimately creating a little experiment area for the guests to bring their thing in. And then, yes. then we kind of examine it after the fact. Yeah. They're lovely. Right. And so, and therefore get exposure to, to other ways of working with a group. And that's that's mm -hmm. the beauty of it. It's what we're talking about is making sure you're not just hostage to the one framework that you were first taught or exposed to. That's right. Well, you know, I think that's a fine place for us to wrap today. And mm -hmm. so I want to kick it over to you, Marcus, to leave our listeners with a final thought. Well, look, two parts. So I guess the first part would be, look, if you're interested in um, getting in touch, then LinkedIn is an easy place to find me. Um, but as I'll offer you a thought that was given to me years ago, that, that facilitation is a lifestyle. Uh, and what I mean by that is that everywhere we go, we get the opportunity to see people working with people. 
you know you can see that at the at the check-in desk of an of an airline airport um you can see it in the um the 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 supermarket goings on of a a parent with their children as they walk down the aisle Uh, and you're watching groups of people do things together and I suppose I'd encourage, I found that advice very useful because I was able to draw inspiration from pretty much everything I saw or watched or, or where I went. I could see things happening that were that were interesting. And I think we're very lucky for that fact. Um, so I look forward to staying connected to your community and I really appreciate the time you've taken today and the invitation to be part of it. Well, it's been a pleasure having you and really enjoyed the conversation. Likewise. Thanks, Douglas. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com.